Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. What is Hispanic Heritage Month? When was it established? And who does Hispanic Heritage Month honor? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. Three decades. Hispanic Heritage Month has been taking place every year from September 15th to October 15th. It honors the more than 60 million Hispanic Americans living in the U.S. But there's more meaning behind Hispanic Heritage Month than simply celebrating a particular group of people. There's a rich history behind the celebration, marking the histories, cultures, and contributions made by the Hispanic population. So how did Hispanic Heritage Month come to be? Why is it so important? And what are some of the ways it's celebrated today? Well, here to talk to me about it all is historian and professor in Latin American and Caribbean studies, Dr. Luis Martinez Fernandez. And Luis joins me now. Luis, thank you so much for coming on Getting Schooled. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing very well, thank you, and pleased to be participating in your show. Well, I am pleased to have you on. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, you know, I, this is this is a, a good topic, and we're we're celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month, and I think it's important to realize what the context is, what exactly the celebration means. So let's start with that. What is the history of Hispanic Heritage Month, and when was it started? Well, we have to go back to the 1960s, which was a peak in the civil rights movements in, in, in the United States. And it all began in 1967, 68, when a congressman from California, actually from East L.A., George Brown, introduced a bill in Congress to celebrate, commemorate what was then just Hispanic Heritage Week. Later on, it changed. So uh, President Johnson signed it into law in 1968. And then in 1987-88, another bill came up for transforming what had been a Hispanic Heritage Week into a whole month celebration. And Ronald Reagan signed that into law in 1988. And why do we celebrate? Why, why did we select September 15 to October 15? Well, the reason was that four of the smallest countries in, in Latin America, actually all of them in Central America, became independent on September 15, 1821. So that's how they decided to select that as a start date. I see. And then how did it expand from that week to the month? What changed? What was added to prolong that celebration and commemoration? Well, many things have changed. Um, as far as the extension 
Well, it became a month and, of course, a larger amount of time, but it also further institutionalized it uh, nationwide. And we have seen how over the course of the past uh, two decades, a whole range of institutions have decided to embrace that celebration. I'm talking about, of course, universities, cultural organizations, but corporations, um, you'd be hard pressed to find a major corporation that at this time does not set aside some time, some resources for that celebration. Absolutely. And while we're on that topic, how do people celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month. Are there specific things that are traced back? I mean, heritage that just that that suggests things are traced back to, you know, the the beginning of the history. So what is important to remember during this month and how do you celebrate? Well, uh, there there are different ways of celebrating it. Uh, I wrote a column a few months ago in which I suggested the ways not to celebrate it. Um, because sometimes it's celebrated in a superficial fashion, and I call them the three usual suspects, so Latinos, Hispanics in the U.S. Well, we talk about music, we talk about um, the food, and we talk about things like sombreros. And, of course, uh, those are reductions of a much grander set of cultural contributions um, that does not really uh, recognize the diversity. So one of the things that I do is uh, when I have a, an opportunity to talk about this is, well, sure, have the Mexican buffet, but make sure that you also have a poet, a writer, um, a, a painter, uh, individuals from other areas that go beyond the folklore. Interesting. Okay, so you're saying the usual suspects the ways that we shouldn't be celebrating is just boiling it down to the music, the food, and sombreros. We need to um, expand that. We need to interview people regarding those things, people from different areas, and 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 get context to those things. Is that what you're trying to to make sure people notice? That that is uh, one of my uh, one of my objectives, really, to. Uh, present uh, Latin America, its culture, the culture of Latinos in all of its diversity. Uh, Few people fully understand all of the various cultures that are involved. Um, Hispanic is, and, and, and we can talk about the census as well, because Hispanic is cultural. It's not a race. And um, yes, I think we should explore um, that rich diversity. Can you actually delve into that a little bit more? The fact that Hispanic is cultural and not a race. I would love to hear more about that from from your voice. Yes, there's a long history of terminology. Uh, When I speak in public, usually one of the first questions is, well, Professor, um, what is the right term? Should we call people Latino, Hispanic, uh, Latinx? And um, that gives you an opportunity to talk about uh, about that history, which, by the way, it's not settled. Um, when we look at the census categories, in 1930, 
the census created a new category. Before that, there were fewer categories. We had uh, whites, blacks, Asians. It was basically that. And in 1930, a new category was created called the Mexican race. And it's interesting what happened after that, because, and and by the way, I, I think that this country still trapped in the binary of black and white, uh, as large as the population of Hispanics is in this country, and we can talk numbers later, 62, uh, 60.2 million people, as large as it is, 18.7% of the population, uh, there's still difficulties with classifying us. And by the way, I should also say that um Within the Hispanic Latino community, there are different ways of um, uh, of using these labels. Some of them are more widely accepted than others. But going back to the census in 1930, uh, the Mexican government and LULAC, which is the Latin American, uh, the the League of United Latin American Citizens, they protested. Because what happened was that before that, Mexicans were placed in the white category. Now, all of a sudden, this is created. And it was regardless to actual skin color, all Mexicans were now part of the Mexican race. And there's no such thing as the Mexican race. Mm. Um, There is a Mexican culture and actually different cultures within Mexico. Now, As a result of the protest, that category was eliminated. Something interesting happened in 1970 when the census allowed people to be classified as other race. And this is important because what we see gradually over the last 50 years is that the census is giving more power, if you will, for individuals to self-classify and embrace different labels. Actually, what we have seen in the last uh, census is an enormous spike. And of all the quote unquote racial ethnic categories, the one that increased by far at the sharpest rate was other. So people are embracing other rather than Hispanic, rather than Asian perhaps. Now, in 1980, the census started a new category, which is Hispanic or Spanish. And then there was a second question. So you had to select whether you were non-Hispanic white or black or Asian. And now there's a new category, which is Hispanic. And then the census Uh, took a step further with a second question, which was, now that you are classified as Hispanic, to which group do you belong? And originally, they were just um, Mexicans, which are, and people of Mexican ancestry, which are by far the largest Hispanic Latino group, Puerto Rican, which was the second, Cubans, and then other. Since then, the census has been more uh explicit offering different uh other categories 
All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. So then when you when you talk to someone, uh, Luis, do you tell them or do you ever correct them? I mean, when we're not talking about the census and we're just talking about everyday life, how should we be um, classifying people? Because you said you you run into this all the time when you give talks. That's kind of the first question people ask. What do you prefer? Um, How should people be addressing one another? Well, that's a good question. I think the where we should go is uh, what is the preference for the for the Hispanic Latino population? Now, Latinx has become uh, very popular, but in certain specific areas, particularly universities and also in journalism. Uh, but if you ask the Latino community, 65% of them have not even heard of the term Latinx. Only 4% embrace it. Um, The way Latinos prefer to be referred to, if we're going to choose a label, is first of all, by your country of origin or ancestry or birth. So, you know, Cubans prefer to be called Cubans. Uh, The same thing with Argentinians and other groups. The second option is the oldest, which is Hispanic. And uh, many people reject that, but not the majority of Hispanics. It is just not the majority. It's just that minority that I refer to. And the claim is that the term Hispanic was imposed by the federal government, which is not true. Uh, It was the lobbying and activities by uh, Hispanics in this country that wanted to create that category, which came into fruition in 1980. Now, then there is Latino, which started um, in the 1990s to gain force, but still, uh, it's only a minority of the Hispanics that prefer it. And then there's Latinx. And other things that I won't even go into because, uh, you know, there's a new category, which is BIPOC, is Black Indigenous Person of Color. You know, I, I really think that's offensive, to be honest. Mm. Uh, uh, but some people use it and some people think it's politically correct. Uh, I do find it uh, actually offensive. Really? And why do you find that one offensive? Because it's interesting. Because, I mean, we, we a lot of times I think there's so much focus on being politically correct and we obviously want to call people by the right um, yeah. the right terminology. But then there's something like that, which I've also heard in or I've seen written. Um, and it's interesting to hear that, you know, I've I've personally never used that term. Um, but why do you find it offensive for people who have? Well, to begin with, uh, language is something to care for. <laughs> and you create this, which is uh, an acronym, BIPOC, which sounds awful, 
Uh, and then the, the objective is apparently to bring all these groups together uh, without recognizing that there are very sharp differences in these cultures, politically, mm-hmm. culturally, in, in every other way. So I, I, I don't really like this um, trend of trying to lump everybody together. Uh, the word Latin X. Uh, which is also, again, in vogue, but in select air, uh, places, universities, for example, uh, that is really against uh, the Spanish language, where, you know, words in Spanish are usually gendered. If they end in an O, is masculine. If they end in an A, is feminine. But this is a new creation um, over the last 10 years, and it is basically an assault on the Spanish language. Actually, the Royal, the Spanish Academy of Language has rejected that construction uh, completely. Really? Yeah, because so so you're just to just to confirm. So when it comes to Latinx, they're trying to make that word gender neutral, but in um the Spanish language, you do, you use O or U usually if it's masculine or feminine. And it just, am I getting that correct? Yes, that's the way it's been right. since since Cervantes and even before. Right. Uh, but, you know, uh, I once had a conversation with a friend, a colleague, and he told me, and this is when the word African-American, that term was beginning to replace black. And he told me, Luis, you know, if a corporation is tinkering too much with its logo, it's a sign that it's in trouble. So mm. I, I wish we spent less time um, actually forcing terms on one another and even scolding people if they don't use the one that particular people like to. Uh, I, I think that detracts from the goal of unity that, is something that most Latinos aspire to. Well, I think that is such a good perspective, Luis, because I, I would I would venture to say that the majority of people aren't trying to be offensive. They're trying to classify someone as the right thing. And all it takes is just a quick conversation of, hey, you know, I actually prefer to be addressed this way. And then that then everyone can move on. And 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 I would be hard pressed to think that. So like it, it takes a very malicious person to be like, no, I'm not going to do that. But, you know, I think yeah. people want to learn. And, and that's that's what's great about having a conversation about it is that people can listen to one another and be educated. Yes. And I haven't really given you the answer to the question you posed as to which one to use. Yes. And. This is my philosophy. Well, it depends on where you are and what the audience is. If you are in, you know, this is a generalization, in the progressive Northeast, then Latinx is is used more and more. Uh, Latin, secondly, and they they, they don't want to hear the word Hispanic. And I I can talk about that in, in just a minute. But in other places, in Florida where I live, uh, Hispanic is not not offensive. Now, what I'm against, and I'll tell you where this is coming from, uh, my parents took me out of Cuba because in Cuba, people were being forced to use certain words and, and discount others. For example, 
it became fashionable in the first couple of years of the revolution, rather than call uh, a, a person señor or señora, which was a traditional, to call them compañeros. Now, if you want to use the word compañeros, that's fine. Where I draw the line is when it becomes an imposition. Mm. And, and, and that's why I, I still use the two words, Hispanic, Latino. I use them interchangeably. So I don't think it's right for any group, uh, especially a, a minority, to impose certain terminology on the rest. Right. Well, I mean, it's it's so important to have that conversation. And, and I do. I appreciate that perspective because actually asking someone what they prefer is, I feel like, the best way to do it. Um, that way you can get it right. So just to kind of get back to the history of Hispanic Heritage Month, you know, you mentioned you were born in Havana, Cuba. You were raised in Lima, Peru, San Juan, Puerto Rico. Why do you find it so important to celebrate this month? Well, I'll be honest with you. I'm not a big fan of designating a month for a particular group, and I'll tell you why. Because at least in the case of Hispanics, and I think I'm being very honest, that is about the only time of the year when Hispanic contributions, uh, cultural, social, uh, economic, are really recognized. And... Uh, what happens the rest of the of the year? So, so that's my first answer. Now, now that we have one month, <clears throat> um, I think that's important because it it, sell, it serves as um, a means of education. I have a talk that I give <clears throat> with the title of "Beyond Tacos, Salsa, and Sombreros." And my intention is precisely to talk about the, the cultural wealth, um, to talk about things that are not material culture, but the deeply ingrained cultural values of our communities. And let me just share a couple of them with you. Uh, I'm convinced because I've been a student of Latino culture and Latin American culture for many years, that, that there's a higher degree of um, generosity in our communities. Uh, I'm referring to things such as information, you know? If you have information and that information could help somebody else, there's a tendency to be generous with that, with that information. And I see that particularly in, in our group. Um, also, a a sense of uh, community that is stronger, a broader sense of family, which is not the nuclear family. And it's interesting how even Catholicism plays a role in this. And that is that there's a practice of having godparents for children. Mm. And what that does is, well, you have the nuclear family, but the nuclear family is also expands into the extended family. That's where the grandparents, aunts, uncles, nieces. And then there's a spiritual family. I don't think people are aware of that, but when you take on the responsibility of being a godparent to a child, um, 
you're taking on the responsibility on the one hand to care for their spiritual development. And secondly, if the parents are, are, are absent for one reason or another, uh, then you also have a responsibility, a material responsibility with those children. So our, our communities have all of these mechanisms that strengthen uh, community. That is such an admirable part of the culture too. the the focus on family and a lot of times focus on faith. And it seems like there is just this this culture of everyone is there for one another. And um, just to kind of reinforce your point. And I think that's such a great thing to celebrate. We'll be right back after this. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Is there someone, Luis, that you believe or maybe it could be a group of people that every single Hispanic Heritage Month should be celebrating? Like, is there someone that that comes to mind for you? Well, that's a good question. Um, First of all, um, Mexicans, Mexican-Americans and Chicanos are the largest percentage of Hispanics in this country. Last I checked, it was about 63%. It might be even higher. So whenever there's an event of that nature, and of course it varies, but uh, given the importance, numerical importance of of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, there should be uh, attention to that group. And then the other groups, and it varies. If, If you're celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month in South Florida, well, maybe the Mexican component is not that important. Uh, In New York, the Puerto Rican component would be very important. And and there's an increasing uh, call, and I think it's fair, to also keep in mind the contributions of Afro-Latinos, whose heritage goes back to this syncretism between Spanish uh, culture and also African culture, and something new is created through that syncretism. Um, those are those are some of the things that you should uh, keep in mind. That is not to generalize for for all Hispanics, but be sensitive to the different cultural groups and try to address each of these groups when you're celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month. You know, that actually brings up a question um, that I had that I just thought of. Um, Is there something that uh, people typically get wrong that you are used to encountering, something that you would like to set the record straight on? Or, um, you know, you talk about overgeneralization. That's something that happens, I think, to a lot of groups of people um, and a lot of just things in general. So what 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 do you what is your response to that? Well, um. I don't think I'm discovering anything new by saying that there's a lot of cultural ignorance among many in this country and other parts of the world. 
And um, the ba basically, I think the first mistake is to think that all Latinos uh, look alike, think alike, vote alike, dance alike. Um, that is a, a major uh, mistake. So one of the things that can come out of Hispanic Heritage Month celebrations is to highlight that diversity. And sometimes some of these groups don't even talk to one another. Uh, uh, that's part of the of the history and the culture. Right. How, how do you think um, you had mentioned that kind of at the beginning of our conversation of ways not to celebrate? What is the ideal way over the month to be celebrating? What should people be doing? Good. Well, if if you're in charge of putting together a Hispanic Heritage Month celebration at your corporation, I think it's fair to dedicate the right amount of resources for that celebration. You know, just having a, a bowl of chips and salsa will not cut it. You, you have to do something that is similar to, to what you do for, for other groups. Um, again, the point about avoiding those stereotypes. Uh, if you want to invite a mariachi band, that's fine. <laughs> um, but but also, if you have other uh, activities, try to incorporate other groups and their cultural uh, contributions. And that, again, includes painting, poetry, uh, includes the fine arts, composers. Absolutely. I mean, there are so many ways to celebrate those things. And it seems like delving into more of the culture, you talk about the painting, the poetry um, and, and the music. And, and I know that you had mentioned not to just focus on those broad categories, but kind of explore how those categories um, can be shown throughout the entire country from different groups of people, because obviously it's just like, you know, the United States there, there are a lot of different cultures within the United States. And then when you expand that to Hispanic, um, the Hispanic culture, you have so many avenues that you can go. So, you know, what would you tell people if they, I know you say if they're organizing these celebrations, but if you were doing it, Luis, what would what what would a celebration look like for you? Well, that, I'm glad you posed that question because although I I love being what what is now called a content creator uh, in terms of producing speeches or powerpoints to demonstrate that, I really have a a heart for organizing cultural events. Um, about 17 years ago, when I arrived in Orlando, I, I created the first Latin American cultural festival of Orlando. And uh, the first thing that we did is, you know, you, you need to get input from the community. That's very important. So we had a, a community board. Uh, secondly, you have to think beyond what I referred earlier as the three usual suspects. So what we had was, for example, we had, uh, there was a, a salsa event, and I mean the, the musical genre, but we also had tango another night. Uh, we had popular music, 
but we also had music composed by Latin American composers, fine uh, music. We also had uh, painting exhibits. And um, I don't know, I, I think it's it's very important and and we owe it to ourselves as organizers of these events to think deeply and avoid the stereotypes and you know the food is important <laughs> mm-hmm. when i'm speaking and there's a, a buffet after speaking i, I know i'm in the way <laughs> so i know people care about that people care about the 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 band that will play later at night but i think there's space for all of us I love that. And that that's a great way to put it, that there's space for everyone. And that's kind of what the celebration is about, too. So as we wrap up the podcast, Luis, uh, is there anything left that you think people should know about Hispanic Heritage Month? Well, um, Hispanic Heritage Month is also an opportunity to have a better demographic understanding of that population. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, maybe I, I used the wrong number, but 62.1 million. Uh, this is a growth of over 10 million from the previous census. Uh, we're talking about a population that is 18.7%. We're talking about a young population, uh, which will continue to grow. It's, it's funny, a few days ago, I was looking at some newspapers from the 1980s, and there was a 1986 story about the census in which they were forecasting that by 2020, there would be 36.5 million Hispanics. Well, they were off, 62.1 million. And I just looked up some forecasts of the census for the year 2060, and they say 94.7 million. Now, if they're, they may be off as they were back in 1986. So it's important to recognize that it is a large segment of the population. It is the largest minority and it's going to be growing. And we should be ready for that. We should be ready for that in schools and universities and corporations and the media. Definitely. Luis, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, Have fun celebrating. We'll be celebrating you too. And I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much. All right. If you missed anything from class, these are my office hours. And here are some top takeaways about the history of Hispanic Heritage Month. Number one. Luis says that Hispanic Heritage Month began in 1968 when a congressman from East L.A. by the name of George Brown introduced the bill to celebrate and commemorate Hispanic Heritage Week. It eventually then obviously evolved into a month-long celebration. Number two, Luis mentions that it's important to recognize that Hispanic is a culture and not a race. He emphasizes there are a lot of different cultures to celebrate during this month. And number three, Luis brought up that the reason why the term Latinx isn't as widely accepted across the Hispanic community is because in the Spanish language, words are gendered. So it's not offensive to him if someone uses the term Latino or Latina. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast on Hispanic Heritage Month. 
For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.